Hi everyone and welcome to the new episode of the On Design podcast. I'm your host, Justyna Green. It's wonderful to have you join me for today's episode. Our guest is Lisa Enebis, who's the creative director of Studio Dunbar. In our conversation, we talk about all things motion design, type radio, and Lisa's love of books. We also dive into her approach to life. Lisa discusses the importance of not being afraid of change and always testing yourself by stepping into uncomfortable and challenging situations, which can lead to growth and learning. She also shares an important lesson her father taught her. If you don't play, you can never win which she's been applying to her life by daring and asking, knowing that she has nothing to lose. Let's dive in. So let's start with quick fire questions. I say five questions, very short answers, and we can then go into those answers in, in our chat. So if you weren't in your current role, what would you be doing? Nothing. This is the only thing I can do. What would your dream project be? Dream projects are projects always in areas that I have never, ever delved into. So areas that have not been designed. Can you think of an area? Kind of- I, don't, I, yeah. I mean, I don't know. We've worked with companies like that design toilet seats. I, would I ever think of something like this? Like that we could design branding for them? No, I couldn't. I've never thought of this. We worked for a company that uh, lays cables underwater. It's not like the first thing you think of. Like, I wasn't five years old thinking, wow, this is what I want to do. But that it's an area that has not really been discovered. That is something I, lo- I really enjoy uh, looking into. Or at least subject matters that I have no idea about. I can, I can make, come up with all sorts of small talk now that I know about these subjects. <laughs> Next question. Who's a creative that you admire? I would say uh, Miro as an artist. What's one thing you cannot stand in design? Pretense. I don't like when people pretend they're something and they're not, or they tell you it's one thing and it's not, or they oversell a design. It is what it is. Just tell me the, tell me who you are or tell me the truth. And what's the best piece of advice you were ever given? Best piece of advice was from my father. If you don't play, you can't win. I think you need to go for it and try. You shouldn't, you know, don't edit yourself. Just ask. You never know where that leads you. I love this. (laughs) And what is your background? Like, how did this all start? I'm sorry. uh, This is terrible because I also had a podcast so I have a lot of questions for you yes that's okay so I've worked in design comps for 10 years um as a freelancer I had my agency I worked for design for two years just before the pandemic so I come from that background and then I started the podcast four years ago and it's grew grown organically to what it is now um yeah, and I kind of continue doing that and kind of the new season where you'll be part of the season. We have Paola Antonelli from MoMA. We have Simon Mottram, who founded Rafa. Uh, we have Mona Chalabi as well, who I adore. Um, and we have Hans Ulrich Ulbricht from Serpentine Gallery. Wow. So that's all who's like confirmed. Um, and all the rest, it's kind of in the works because... Um, I'm aiming to be just kind of, maybe put it that way. 
sometimes getting like bigger names can be easier because they recognize but it's what I want to make sure is that we have new names as well kind of on the podcast so it's kind of having you know the Hanson Paola and having you the kind of the established um, professionals and then having the kind of younger creatives to kind of to show the you know different diverse side of the industry so if you have any kind of young creatives, especially like from um, you know working that work with you on demo, like definitely kind of send them my way. Oh, definitely. Yeah, I don't know. Um, I mean, I know them through work, and not necessarily how eloquent they are as uh, speakers. But I think I that's, that's also research, that's for right? you to for you to research and see what would be interesting. But definitely, um, yeah. There's a uh, there's a lot of. Um, emerging artists or designers that I, I'm also very curious to hear what is in their minds. Sometimes I look at their work and I'm like, how, how is this boss? Like, where, where does this come? What is, where does this inspiration come from? Like, yeah, wh what did you think of when you were a child? You know, yeah, what did you, what, when you uh, grew up, like what happened to you? <laughs> Because the experiences will be also different, and I remember interviewing, um, just interviewing some creatives in their who are in their twenties, um, and then suddenly their experience just growing up and what inspiration was is completely different. Yeah, exactly. I, I really yeah, but I think it's really good to have a mix of um, people in different, uh, also age groups, uh, ethnicity to. Because yeah, the established is yeah. In a way, we hear we've heard we. It's not that we we've heard the story a million times, but I'm always uh, curious about the story. Yeah, the stories you don't know or you you yet to discover, and and it gives a, a huge opportunity, I think, for an, the next generation Absolutely. to stand by. Yeah, for I'm time parading. It's really interesting as well to have them, you know, the two together. So to have kind of more established person followed by, say, an episode with a younger or emerging creative and see how many things you learn or how different are the things that you learn from them as well. And also to go back, uh, if you, I mean, I don't know how many years you're going to continue, <laughs> but it's great to, you know, go back and uh, interview them again. Right. Yeah. yeah. Like um, there was this British program or seven plus, or they had this. Yeah, what was that? I don't know it. Um, where they, I, I don't know, it was a group of 10, maybe less, uh, children at the age of seven, where they interviewed them, and all of them had a different uh, background, family background, and then they, then they met up with them again seven years later, when they were 14 and then 21. I, I don't know how many years it continued, but it was really fascinating to see uh, the characteristics of a child at seven and how, you know, how they saw the world and how they developed and what really was, like the essence is still there. The, and uh, also the difference in background had quite a big effect on how you, I think, develop personally, like your family, like values or ideas, 
And it, it was like, it was a social experiment, I think that, uh, and it was by the BBC. So I am sure you can, yeah, you can still see, I, I think on YouTube, you can find it and see it. That sounds very interesting. And actually, um, let, let's, uh, let's have a seven plus on you now, <laughs> but that will be in your own words. Yeah, then I will be dead, <laughs> but that's another story. <laughs> Um, because you mentioned, you know, that the kids at seven, their their essence was already there, and then kind of that essence carried. So, do you remember yourself at seven and what that essence was that you carried with you? Yeah, good question. Because when we talk about, I I find it, I don't have a lot of a, a huge number of memories of when I of how I was growing growing up, but for some reason. Um, I was always trusted to take care of all the younger kids of the family. Like I was always a, a bit older and all the kids in the neighborhood were slightly younger or they were kids from my parents' uh, friends that were maybe three, four years younger. And because I was older, I was always trusted, you know, either, you know, to babysit or if they went, we went out, if Lisa was there, then it was okay. And I, if I think back and I was thinking, well, I don't know if that was okay, but if their perception <laughs> was good. So we could get away with anything and everything just as long as I was there. That's fantastic. So that was some sort of, um, you know, a brand you had for yourself already at a young age. <laughs> uh, exactly. And it continued. So there was no doubt in anyone's eyes that I was... I don't know. I don't know. Maybe I was not, um, I was not extremely outspoken or I don't, I, yeah. So I didn't, I wouldn't get into a lot of trouble or at and least in, that's what people thought. <laughs> and it was a creativity part of your, um, life from early on. Um, not directly, uh, probably more indirectly. I, uh, my mother definitely, she liked to draw and um, paint. So it, it was an inspiration, but it was not at, uh, I wouldn't say at a very early age that I like. I thought I would go into the uh, arts. And my grandmother was a biochemist. And so she spent a lot of time, she lived in the States and I would occasionally visit her and she would take me to the lab. Uh, I had a pet white rat to play with during the summer and I was always fa fascinated in um, with her world also to be in the lab but also uh, I admired my mother that she could draw so I for myself in the beginning I put those two worlds together and initially I wanted to become a medical uh, illustrator so I would draw a lot of, I don't know, I drew, I, I don't know, lobsters and uh, insects and, uh, I, I don't know, uh, nature, or, or leaves and all sorts of things that I could find and really spend hours and hours uh, making these very, very detailed drawings. So at first instance, I think that was where I wanted, what I wanted to do, if it's within the creative industry. And how has that expanded and kind of where did it take you next? At school, I studied both. I studied physics, chemistry, biology and art. Um, 
and in the end, I decided that I, I felt most comfortable um, with an art. Um, did really well in physics, biology, and chemistry. Failed art, but still, <laughs> I, want, I still wanted to go to art school. And, and I was lucky enough um, to go. My, my family uh, supported me in a, in, a, in a good way. They said, you can, as long as, you can do whatever you want as long as you can support yourself. So I said, okay, I'm going to go to art school and uh, I will see what happens. And uh, they, um, the art school did not have a, what is it, a medical il illustration course. They had a foundation course where I could really study in all sorts of areas. And I had a bigger affinity with typography and uh, more graphic design. And that's how I went into uh, graphic design. And can you tell me about typography? Because to me, typography, there seems, it seems to be a church. And it's, it's something that I, I, I look at, but I'm not part of because it blows my mind. And so how did you, how does one get into typography or kind of what's your, what does it give to you, kind of typography and working in the field? I'm not a fanatic in that sense. I'm interested in typographers the way they think, the way they work, um, but not the, it's not the typeface. I like them, uh, I, I find them as a beautiful form, as a tool for communication, but I'm not a type designer. That's a different, uh, I find it, a, yeah, it's a bit of a, I, I find it hard to be clear on this uh, question. Yeah, because yeah, you started um, your typography podcasts many, many years ago. Was it the first typography podcast in the world? I think so. I think it's probably one of the, actually probably the first uh, podcast on type and design. Uh, it started pre, yeah, Type Radio started pre-podcast and uh, we, in a way it was like a pirate radio and uh, we started in Berlin. We were five, um, four type designers and myself as a designer with the idea, why don't we go, why don't we interview designers and talk about something that is so visual, but on the radio. So the, the paradox was what we found really exciting. And we would go to, a, we went to Typo Berlin at the time, and there were a lot of uh, designers that were invited there. Um, our first person that we interviewed was Stefan Sagmeister. Um, and we had a room and we start, we interviewed people. We had zero, no we had one, zero knowledge about radio. Uh, I was, none of us were journalists, but what we had was curiosity. And for me, the reason I wanted to do this project and why I was involved was I I'm just very curious to understand, um, how uh, a designer or a person is thinking and what they're doing to ask questions. And I just like more, like the idea of more the question in a way um, than anything else. And just understanding like, how is this person inspired? How, how do they wake up in the morning? What do they eat? Are they religious? Do they, uh, you know, do they, do they cheat? 
Do they steal? There are all these questions that were always around the subject, but not 100% on the subject. Because once you start becoming a lot more personal, then you know, you understand a little bit better about the work itself. Because the work you see, you read interviews like, oh, okay, you know, they made this, they made that. I, I see it, I feel it. But who the person is, like, um, I don't know, there's stories about their families. For me, that really gives me such a big ins insight, but also very, very inspiring. Even the most mundane, you know, like I wake up in the morning and I just drink a cup of coffee. It also makes people normal and more human, you know, it's, they're, they're more, you can, in a way, touch somebody like that. They don't become these icons and heroes that we uh, see. And that's what I really loved about it. And also hearing the voice, because the voice tells so much about someone. And it's really, it's almost, you hear with a pause, or uh, the silence that gives you, tells you a hundred times more about someone than when they're continuously uh, talking, when they hesitate to answer, you know? Uh, I think that's always fascinating. Yeah, I guess people interview for different reasons as well, right? Because um, there's, to be able to get into the person and who they are, you need to be pretty open as well, I would say. Um, but I completely agree with you about getting to know the person and especially with the kind of bigger names, making them more human and making them just like us so that we all feel like we're part of the same thing. We're all being creative. And there's no heroes who magically made things happen. Everybody had a bumpy road or had a background that enabled them or didn't enable them to do what they want to do. So that's, you know, even what you just shared about your grandmother and your pet rat, you know, that's super interesting. And that's something that I really, really love. Um, and like you say as well, with, you know, online, we can read a lot and learn about work that way. But it's different to learn about the person because sometimes the interviews are just not, um, not that personal. So we finished at you kind of getting, being interested in typography and graphic design and kind of choosing that as your path. Can you take us to, through your journey, being at Pentagram and then what made you join Studio Dunbar? I think with, um, actually the journey started uh, first with Studio Dunbar. I'm, I met somebody while studying uh, actually a very close friend. And um, when I was about to graduate, I had a feeling I had not finished yet. Like I, my, I finished my bachelor course, but I, I didn't feel I was ready. I was, I, I still wanted to explore more. I, I, I wanted to continue uh, learning. And of course you continue learning throughout, but I want, I, I wanted to, to study. And um, he always, and I think throughout my life, he always gives me good advice. He said, oh, Lisa, you know, you should go to the Netherlands. I think there, the work, what the Netherlands is doing, what the, what the design means in the Netherlands, it's, uh, it's, there's a lot of experiment, a lot of freedom. You should go there. You should, you know, look at Studio Dunbar. 
so I applied for an internship at uh, Dunbar after a graduation, and it was um, it was an eye opener. It was not what I expected design to be. I had this set in my mind, like there's a tradition. Uh, there was like a freedom of playing and experimenting. And um, Gert Dunbar was also here at the time, and he really, um, he taught at the Royal College of Art. And he said, Lisa, you know, if you want to continue studying, the Royal College of Art is definitely a place that you should apply. Uh, my friend also recommended me, uh, go to London, go there, you should go there. This is a great place to be. And uh, in the meantime, I applied and I was lucky to get in. So I, mo I, I moved to the UK. And the being in uh, the RCA was really a sort of formative year. I was finally at a place with people that like from all over the world that really loved their craft and really excelled in that area. I was seeing work, such diverse work from car, you know, there was car design, product design, fine arts, um, curators, um, my best friend was a is a, was a stained glass conservator at the VNA. We would walk at nighttime, you know, at like ten o'clock at night after the museum was closed around the VNA with just the guards. It was an amazing experience, and um, being there and meeting so many people and being in London was so exciting that I thought, okay, I would like actually to move back to the Netherlands. But if I'm in London, I really would like to stay a little bit longer and, and really understand the city and, and understand uh, the fabric of the city. And it's interesting because you assume if you speak English, for example, that you understand the English. But it's not true. It's like two different languages. This is different. And I, I'm born in the UK, but I grew up in Greece. So... For me, it was also I need to understand and live here more to finally to, to understand and speak the same language. And I thought, OK, one thing I should do is um, uh, I, I wanted to work or at least visit Pentagram because it was like this. Um, I think uh, in terms of graphic design, it's an iconic studio uh, that you know, represents graphic design with uh, Alan Fletcher and um, so many amazing, well, uh, designers from there. And so I thought, okay, I will need to visit it. It's like the British Museum, you know, you go first time in London, you need to see this. And so I went, I, um, I went and I was lucky enough, there was a job opening also after I graduated and I got a position there. So I stayed uh, there and um, yeah, it was a, I think it was, it was also an extra part of my education. It's like a finishing school, they call it, or yeah, I learned the what not and what to do, what not to do, what to say, what not to say. Um, I worked for David Hillman. Um, he was a partner at the time. He's an um, editorial designer, extremely, a huge personality. He taught me how to swear. I'm, I'm not allowed to say any words here. I mean, he has so much energy, so much uh, focus. And he always, he would always say, you know, 
Lisa, stop fucking around, focus on the job. Like this was like, you know, just focus. And that, I think is, uh, I think that, well, um, not the only lesson, but that uh, determination uh, that he had of absolute focus, I think, is uh, was an important uh, uh, lesson. And do you feel after your time at Pentagram and in London, do you now understand the English? I don't know anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I, not not if I read uh, not if I read the uh, the politics, but for the rest, I don't know. I don't know, but uh, I'm. Uh, no, it was uh, definitely a, a, an ex like a great experience. Also, the 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 designers that I met there, um, they are like yeah, lifetime friends. And there was recently a fifty year uh, anniversary where we all came together, and it was like like it was really a, like a almost like a like a family reunion. A little bit scary, huh? <laughs> That uh, graduation where you see people like, oh my god, like, what? Anyway, but it was good to um, see everybody again. And you say you learned to focus. That's what kind of David really taught you to kind of focus on the work. What are some other lessons kind of from Pentagram, or how has your understanding changed of what you were working on or the, your role? Um, lessons from Pentagram for them, they don't compromise quality like qu the quality of the work i think is uh above all they and the like looking always for excellence i think that is definitely i think part of their the way of working um i think that is a that is I, I would say the for me what I would I would take uh, take away. I I don't necessarily I would not structure a team in the same way, but they're a much bigger company and they do they work uh, differently. But for the rest, in terms of quality of work, I there I have a and also the legacy and the history. Um, I think it's very. I think it's in, in you know. It's part of our, you know, our graphic design history. So what, when did you know then that the time in London was coming to an end and it was time to go back to the Netherlands? You know, you're, it's like living with your parents. You, know? you can't live with your parents forever, you know. It's like <laughs> there's a time you have to go, you know. I know I am from a Mediterranean culture, <laughs> Sometimes in we prolong that stay. Although I left, uh, I left when I was I moved out when I was seventeen. But yeah, you you come to the point like you you were a little bit. Yeah, you not you. Um, I don't I don't like to say outgrow myself because you can always learn different things but you I, I wanted to move and make a change and I, I I wanted to move to the Netherlands so yeah it came, it came to the point that it was it was time and it was good and it felt right I think it's uh, it's not good if you stay somewhere too long and you start disliking it you should leave it when it's when it's good 
Otherwise, and so you can always always remember it as good. If you leave uh, if you leave bitter, that always stays. And then I I don't think that is, I don't think that's good for anyone. It's kind of like with the athletes, isn't it? Leaving at the kind of at the peak of the career or just past the peak. <laughs> yeah, you need to push yourself. You know, you have to keep pushing yourself um, to learn more or put yourself in uncomfortable situations, um, because I think that helps you also. At least it helps me grow and, and, and learn more. There's one Im also n important lesson, not lesson, but something, an advice that um, I received from my father very, very early on that he always, always said to me, if you don't play, you can never win. Like he was always you know, saying to me, you know, like he had a friend that, uh, who, uh, always liked to gamble and his, and my father said, yeah, I never win with these things. He says, do you ever play? He says, no. Well, how do you expect that you will ever win anything? And I like that, not necessarily because I want to go, I don't gamble, but I, for me, if we don't dare or don't ask, you know, nothing will happen. And if that nothing will happen, I don't want to regret the nothing. I want to, uh, I want to go, you know, ask, even if it not, if it doesn't happen, at least I gave it a try because there's nothing to lose because I have nothing, you know? It's so good when you said, you know, I don't want to regret the nothing. That's really powerful because I think we often focus, um, on things we regret maybe that we did, but it's a really good thing to think about, about things that we missed or could have missed because we didn't dare to do that. Yeah, and, and I don't mind that I missed it, but at least I gave it a, I, I, at least I gave it a chance. And even if I decide not to, I gave that, I, I myself made that choice, but not to, sit afterwards and I said, I wish I this and that, and I could have that. I don't care about I Then it is what it is, but I rather, I look forward. I don't like, I don't enjoy looking at, uh, I don't enjoy looking at the past. I mean, it's, it's, it, that is, that's it. It's gone. If I can look at your past for a second, can you, <laughs> can you just give us the examples? Because I know that listeners and I will find it really interesting of, just like one or two situations where you, know, you said to get into uncomfortable situations today, what were those situations, say two situations for you that spring to mind immediately that you really challenge yourself? If I connect it to a project uh, that I currently worked on, for example, Demo Festival, the Design and Motion Festival, I think that um, we always dreamt here in the studio to have an exhibition to show motion. We love the idea of showing motion in a public space, but we didn't really see where or how that was possible because we're like, okay, what screens, where? I was, uh, at some point I was thinking we could go into a shop where they sell televisions, where they, and then maybe you can organize it in there. And um, there we, a series of events uh, we met with um, 
Global, who is the one of the biggest screen owners here in the Netherlands, who once was interested in a collaboration with us. And we, and then we thought, okay, this is the moment we can just ask them. We have this idea. We want to show work from around the world for 24 hours on all the screens in Amsterdam Central Station. And we would just ask it. I mean, what is there to lose? They could just say no, and we could just continue our lives. And they said, yeah, we find this interesting. But at that point in time, um, it, we had not organized a festival uh, before. So this was for us a challenge. Like, what does that mean? I mean, uh, organizing to attract X number of pieces of work to show for 24 hours was a huge challenge. And to curate that number of work for 24 hours was also completely new. But we had this focus and commit where we're going to do it and we needed to ask. And we got the yes, and then the yes meant we had to follow up. Saying that, I also don't believe in that you go in and say yeses to things that you... Um, the, to things that you, you know, like you pretend something that you could never, ever, ever do, you know, you are, you're in that area where, you know, you, you have, you have, uh, enough experience to understand that, you know, that's possible. You can, you're in the area, you know, I probably would not organize a festival for, I don't know, scientific research, if I didn't know anything, you know, it was, it, it's in, still in a sort of area that we are familiar with. And that was the first time that we organized it. And then the second time, which just happened uh, three, month, uh, three months ago, we said, like, the idea I was thinking, okay, if we can do it in a station, what happens if you do it as a whole country? I dream, I, I was like dreaming about this all continuously I was like wow the screens turn off we can just organize that everywhere what you know why why can't we do something we should ask and this meant that it's not only one partner but we had 15 partners and 5,000 screens 32 different floor I mean if I thought too much about this I would have said Lisa you're an idiot if I think about it, I still say, Lisa, you're an idiot, but I don't regret it one minute. And it was just a simple question, just to ask. And then a lot of praying in between that they would say yes, and a lot of swearing after they said yes. <laughs> That's the thing, right? Because once, when, when you ask, you need to be ready for that yes. You need to be ready to then deploy it and actually make it happen. Exactly. And that part, I love so much that the excitement that once you get that yes, the build up, the excitement of preparation, for me, that is, I love it up to the day. I get when the demo, um, after demo, I, I think that was, I was so sad. It was over like that whole weekend. I was like, and now what? How? What? 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 <laughs> like, what am I? You know, like, I really like the 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 anticipation and the build up uh, 
the adrenaline, like so, so uh, exciting. Uh, to bring a whole community together, that was really, for me, it was like a magical uh, moment. And so I guess when you think about what next, it will be next year's demo and making it even bigger, right? Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> so yeah, I'm now thinking worldwide. I, I don't think we can manage the whole world turning their screens off. I don't, yeah, that will be a little bit tricky. Yeah, that is the next uh, step. Not necessarily that bigger is always better, but I, I, the idea of connecting different cities together, also giving a chance for people that, I mean, that are not able to travel all the way to the Netherlands to ha have that chance to share the work with more people. I think that would be uh, definitely uh, something that would uh, I would really, really love to do. In one of your interviews, I remember you mentioning that static is not an option. And I was kind of you know, talking about um, motion design and uh, illustration and graphic design. I'd love to hear your thoughts about how our digital and physical lives are changing and how important that motion design is or adding motion to our work as creatives. Yeah. So for motion, I think, I mean, I think it plays a very important aspect when it comes to a brand. I think it's one of its characteristics. We always talk about brands. Um, they have personalities. They have very human characteristics. And um, when, when we design an identity, you know, they, they have all the... Uh, we have the typography, the color, the, um, the graphic language. I think motion is really where... Um, it really brings all these elements together and really brings the whole identity to life. And of course, along with motion, there is sound, just like a human. I mean, you hear, you know, you move, you speak. I think that's very much typical also of how a brand is. There's also a tone of voice. Um, so most of and also the medium that we work on i mean it's not only print and you know signage uh on a building or it's on a van but it also appears on multiple screens so the possibility of bringing in motion and sound i think is a lot there's a lot more room for that but i also want to have a big disclaimer it doesn't mean that every brand needs motion or every brand needs sound i think it should be or every brand has to have 25 colors or type or however it is it is you have to see where it is appropriate and where you should use it you shouldn't use uh, motion for motion's sake i mean that's something i see a lot like oh if it moves it's it's good I don't believe that. You sh you need to use motion with uh, purpose. And so I guess we're looking at having motion as one of the areas, say motion and sound, when you go through the branding experience, to notice and make conscious decisions, whether there is motion or there is no motion. And the lack of motion can be a choice if you've considered, if you've considered it. Exactly. And it can really give you, um, it can tell a lot about a brand personality just by its um, movement. If you have like a very hard cut, it feels very, very different 
um, to something that is a lot more fluid. But I think this is very uh, typical or it's true, like, uh, like we were talking earlier about the voice and how somebody talks or how somebody uses their hands. Oh, I'm using my hands all over the place. Uh, how they use their hands or they are um, interacting. This is very, um, I think that is something that gives that uh, personality, how you use color. Is it bold? Is it, uh, is it uh, dull? That is all part to create that personality. And if it means it's absolutely static and that is what it needs, the stillness, then I think then it's, it's perfectly fitting. And do you think for new creatives who are studying or have graduated from illustration graphic design courses, would you say it's paramount that they learn how to move their work? No, I don't want to. I don't have these strict uh, beliefs. I think for every graduate, one, they need to work in the field that they feel they're best at and feel they feel more comfortable, but they do need to be in somehow aware of the, the, the tools they're using, the areas um, they're going to go further in, like to, however it is, uh, technology does impact our work. It may, for example, I mean, uh, in a very simplistic way, now, like print is has reduced in a in quite a big way in the last few years for uh, well one for digital but also for sustainability reasons you don't want to print a million things so obviously in that way certain aspects have been uh, reduced you need to be aware of that but it doesn't mean that you shouldn't you should not do it at all there's still stone uh, um, masons there's got you know there's book designers but just understand what your um, the, the what your surroundings are so that you don't I think uh, it, it would be uh, and it's also partly the responsibility of a college and school to educate uh, the students but it doesn't mean you need to be a motion designer I don't I, I don't think and as we're Slowly running out of time um, now as well. I wanted to also hear your thoughts towards the end on work-life balance. And that's another thing kind of for um, different generation has different ideas around work-life balance. And I would love to hear your thoughts on what that is for you. And if you have recommendations for all of us as creatives really have to look at work-life balance. I think that I, I always find this question very personal and to say to another creative, this is how you should do it. That's not my place to do. I do not like, I, I find it, I find the words work and life uh, hard, hard anyway, because it implies that life, that when, when you talk about life, there is no work. Uh, for me, everything that I do is, you know, whether whether I'm directly working on a project or am I at home and talking to my kids um, about any subject matter, everything is inspiring and everything can lead to something else. So I don't have these 
uh, and now it's six o'clock and I've closed the door to something, that is, I don't, I do not distinguish that. And if I spend the weekend going to uh, exhibition, I don't say, oh, this is now life, but it's not work. So I, I, for me, everything is very, very uh, fluid. Um, and, you know, and um, as long as you have room and space uh, to think, and maybe it's also more on doing, a, it's more being involved in a diversity of, of things that I think is important, that you're not only doing that one thing over and over repetitive until, you know, the, in the middle of the night, to really vary your time and, you know, like dive into different worlds. Insp and, one inspires the other. And one of the worlds you dive in as well is the world of books. Aha, uh -huh. that's, <laughs> yes. And that's, because I'm very aware of the time now. Can you tell us briefly about your love of books? And I was wondering, what are the books that you cherish the most? I think it started very early on when I was, uh, you know, I don't know, quite little. <laughs> I don't know, from a young age. For me, the, for me, books is a center, it's in a way an escapism. Of course, one is the reading, you go into another world. But it's also now. It's also uh, the collecting, and when I when I am in a bookstore, or I'm collecting or looking through books. I it is a place where I think of nothing else but what I'm looking at. So when I you know it's like when you're when we talked about earlier about changing worlds or diving into other areas. This is a w place where it, for me this is, I mean you could be shouting next to me I don't hear anything what you're saying I'm in this this uh, in this uh, world it's a way to I find it very relaxing to do this because I think of nothing else and I really enjoy the 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 search sometimes I can wait five six years to look for a, a book it doesn't matter I love that. Like, and I'm looking and looking and looking, and then I find it. It's like, oh. And because the search is so exciting, I, um, I, I, I continue searching for it. Like, I might find a single copy, but because I enjoyed that search, maybe four years later I find the same book, I will still buy it because I'm so excited about the idea that it's still possible to keep finding this book. And, um, yeah, different books, of course, meant different things at different... There are design books, there's artist books um, that meant to me at different um, uh, times. I think the book, there are, in terms of design books, there's a book from... Um, uh, about Yuri and Skrofer, a Dutch designer, and it's his sketchbooks. I recommend if you can find it for a designer. I think it's an incredible book. I lo look at his sketches. Normally, you would say this is all made uh, there. It's digital, but it's all made in by hand. If you see these sketches, it's unbelievable. Like how meticulous. If you talk about focus, this man 
had absolute focus uh, in his work. And I always go back to it. Uh, and just to under, like, I wish I, it was, I mean, he's passed away. I wish I had spoken to him once to, uh, to and interviewed him. The, that's one book. Um, in terms of um, maybe more in art or creativity, there's a book I have from uh, Miro. And I, I love the sense of balance and color, the way he uses that. At some point, I was so obsessed that I had one of his books and I would put it on. I, I would sleep and put the book on top of his head, on top of my head. And then I would say, like, I felt like, OK, this is osmosis. I will be <laughs> inspired. But that that didn't quite happen. I still have a lot to learn. Um, and then for reading um, the books of uh, Primo, Primo Levi, I have never read a book that impact had so much impact. Like I didn't, I couldn't believe the atrocity that I read. And I could, this is something, this book has stayed with me, like, his writing and the images always come back. And even though um, I read this book years ago, I, I don't want to pick up that book again because of the impact it had. I, I, I couldn't, I, I still cannot understand the, the, this ev the evil he describes. And last but not least, uh, books by Anais Nin, which uh, I, I found uh, that I read very young and it was sort of opened up and talked about sexuality. And that for me was eye-opening at the time. So it really varies in, in terms of sort of influence and what that... Uh... That's a lovely selection. So thank you for, for that. And the, the Primo Levi book, is it If This Is a Man? Yes. Yeah, okay. I've heard of it, but I have not read it. So, from what you said, it sounds like one to read in a lifetime. I recommend it. I, mm. I, I would recommend it, but uh, yeah, it is, uh, yeah, it is uh, confronting. Well, thank you so much for your time, Lisa, and thank you for sharing your thoughts on books, on the work-life balance, on demo, on pentagram, and sharing your journey with us. And we look forward to seeing demo in different countries. Maybe I hope in so. 2024. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you. It was such a pleasure to speak to Lisa and her thoughts on work-life balance actually kept me thinking because I've either had my own business or freelanced for 10 years now. Yet I have to tell you that the guilt of not working the traditional office hours still kicks in. And I'm really working this year. I'm being much more fluid with my working hours and more aligned with my energy. I don't know about you, but I know, for example, that between 2 and 4 p.m. I just don't think straight, whilst from 4 p.m. onwards I can work until I go to sleep very happily. So here's to balancing our life wherever possible. Right. If you've enjoyed this episode, then please spread the word about it to your friends and colleagues so that we can grow the own design community. And I'll see you here next week. Bye for now.